Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this time to hear from your word. We ask that by your spirit we would be transformed. Lord, that we would be encouraged where we need to be lifted up. We'd be challenged where we need transformation. And that we'd be open to everything that your spirit wants to do in our hearts, our minds, and our lives. Lord, that we might live kingdom-first lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So back a number of years ago when Ronald Reagan was governor of California, he made a speech in Mexico City. And this is a quote from him recalling that speech. After I had finished speaking, I sat down to rather unenthusiastic applause. And I was a little embarrassed. Now, the speaker who followed me spoke in Spanish, which I didn't understand. And he was being applauded about every paragraph. So to hide my embarrassment, I started clapping before everyone else and longer than anyone else until our ambassador leaned over and said, I wouldn't do that if I were you. He's interpreting your speech. <laughs> Pride. It's a very interesting thing. You know, there's a, there's a good aspect to pride. Uh, there, there's a legitimate uh, evaluation of success or strengths. Uh, you can be proud. I mean, I, I would say this unashamedly. Um, I'm proud of our church. I'm proud of the things that people are stepping up to do to serve the Lord. Um, I am proud of my kids and the, some of the things that they have accomplished. Uh, I think there's a positive aspect to pride. But quite often when we're talking about it in a religious context, we're talking about the negative side. We're talking about the arrogance, the conceit. We're talking about when we see ourselves above other people and look down on them. And as we continue this series in the shadow of the cross, and we continue right from the last passage of last week into this one, Jesus has a parable for those who struggle with pride. A whole parable. He gives it over to those who struggle with pride. And two things about it before we dive into the parable. Number one, if you don't struggle with pride, this may be the first message you can listen to and actually say, I wish this person were here to hear this. <laughs> and here's why I say that. Luke begins by saying this. He told this to some who struggle with this. Maybe you're not the some. Maybe you don't have a struggle with pride. In which case, just listen. Maybe be entertained a little bit. Take something away in case you do struggle with pride at some point, And invite someone who wasn't here to listen to the message. Number two. It's really serious. Um, this, this whole little teaching we're going to do, it is given over to the idea of pride in its negative sense. And 
And so the question I want to ask this morning, why is pride so harmful? What makes it so bad? Go ahead and open your Bible, if you would, to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. What makes pride so harmful? I'm going to read the account, and then we'll dive back in and start looking at bits and pieces. Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And I said I was going to read the whole thing and make comments. I lied. I'm going to make a comment right now. Because there's something in here that I think when you read this, based on our Western evangelical 21st century mindset that you're going to see something in here that wasn't precisely what they would have been talking about. When it says trusted in themselves, this is to have confidence in oneself. And when it says that they were righteous, the word means upright. It's not specifically what we think of as like salvation by faith or salvation by works. It's not specifically that. It has more to do with If I'm doing all of the right things, then I am upright. And the trust here is I'm doing all the right things, so I believe that I'm upright. And I have an attitude that I'm looking down on other people. So if that's you, if you think you're doing the right things, if you think um, you've got enough trust in your actions, this is for you. Here's the parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee is the hero. The tax collector is the thug. If you're a first century audience. The tax collector is a missionary. Who is sacrificed, who is living for the Lord. The tax collector is a pastor who is truly pastoring the flock. I'm sorry, the Pharisee. The tax collector... He and his gang own a section of the city, and they make people pay for protection. They are hated by the nation, by the people. Verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, don't misread that either. Because when they heard it, they would not have heard, Oh, look at me. I'm so awesome. I do all of these great things. They would have heard something like, and I'll just put it in my own words. I could come to the Lord and say, Lord, thank you that I haven't cheated on my wife. Thank you that I am doing the best I can to raise my kids and I'm not stealing from the church. Thank you. I mean, that's what he's doing. Lord, thank you that I'm not extorting people. There's nothing wrong with that. Not on the surface. And as Jesus even said this parable, they wouldn't have gone, yeah, that's our guy. He is honest. He treats people well. He's not like that thug over there. Um, it'd be like me saying, Lord, thank you that I'm not like that rapist, that murderer, that drug dealer, that... And so just on the surface, that's what they're hearing. But the tax collector standing far off 
would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then verse 14 would have been just this radical thing. Because remember, verse 9 isn't Jesus. Luke adds that commentary in. Jesus is just telling the parable. And so when he hits this verse, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. It'd be like, what? How is that even possible? Like the gangster went down justified and the pastor didn't? But you heard the pastor, right, Lord? Like he's the one not doing all these things. The, the thug admitted he's a sinner. How could he go down justified? This would have been a real twist for them. And then Jesus explains it. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but, everyone, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Wait a minute. That Pharisee was exalting himself? That's not what I thought when I first heard that. There's something else going on here. Pride is harmful. I want to give you a couple reasons. Number one, it is easier to be infected by pride than we may realize. Here's one of the reasons why. Much of what we're prideful about is actually justified. he's He's done really good things here. He's not extorting people. He is not unjust. He is not an adulterer. He is not ripping people off like the tax collector. He's actually doing a bunch of good things. He is fasting more than the law requires. And he's tithing of everything that he gets. This room is filled with a bunch of smart people. There's advanced degrees. There's success in careers. There's success in other areas of life. There are reasons for pride. Part of what makes pride so hard is it's not like he's this totally worthless guy that has nothing but weakness, and yet he's standing up going, look how awesome I am. What makes it hard is he actually is awesome in some of these ways, as are we. But see, the flip side of that, this is what pride does. It blinds us to everything else. Pride raises up our successes and our strengths while blinding us to our failures and our weaknesses. Pride is something that goes, because I guarantee you when he said, I'm not unjust, that may be true, but I will bet you cut somebody off on your chariot on your way to the temple today. (laughs) I will bet you yelled at your kid when your kid didn't deserve it. But what pride does is it narrows us in and it focuses, here's your strengths. Yes, look how good I am. And I'm going to ignore everything else. Um, there was one time, a number of years back, um, Aaron and I got to go down, downtown. Um, ABC, uh, for their morning show, they have the studio down there. It's an outdoor studio. And we got to go down there. There's only like 10 of us. And, and we were doing this thing for Cure Search, raising awareness for pediatric cancer. And we're down there, and we're at the studio, and they're filming And there's two things to look at. One is what you actually see while you're standing there. And I mean, there are, I mean, it's kind of like this up here, which some of you can see. There are cables like running all over the place and cameras and people and just stuff everywhere. It's a mess all over the studio. Except if you look at the screen. And the screen is what everybody at home was seeing. And that screen, it looked perfect. You didn't see any of the cables, any of the cameras, any of the cameramen. I mean, everything was exactly as they wanted it. And at one point, they took the camera, and they wanted us to cheer. So we're, like, cheering and clapping and everything. There's only 10 of us. 
Like we look ridiculous, except on the camera. I mean, on the screen. They take the camera, they kind of pan it up like this. And I mean, there looks like there's 50 of us standing there cheering, you know. But what's on that screen, it's only a part of the picture. The rest of it is this total mess. And what pride does is it goes, here's your life. Just look at this picture. That's your life. You're really good at this. That's what it is. It's all about that. Ignore the rest of it. Just look at where you're good. Look at where you're strong. Pride is harmful because it is easy for us to be infected by it. Why? Very simply, we have reasons for it and we get focused on those and then we forget the mess. And that leads to a second harmful thing. I don't know how better to say this. When we get infected by pride, we become buttheads. <laughs> we become critical, judgmental, mean-spirited. Because what are we doing? We're looking at how good we are at in certain areas. What do we start to do to everybody else? We judge them by those areas. We start going, I'm, I'm better than they are at that. How dare them? And we get critical. We start looking down. Look at what he does. Verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself. Now, initially, that could just sound like piety, being alone with God. No, he's removing himself from all the people that he's judging, even to the point that, or even like this tax collector. It's, we start comparing ourselves to other people. Comparisons. They are not helpful most of the time, especially when we're comparing what we're good at versus what they're not so good at. Because how do they stand up? They don't. They look terrible. And it gives us more reason to go, yes, look how good I am. Because I'm so much better than they are at that. And this is what pride does. As we look at that screen and we go, look how good I am. And now we start comparing ourselves to others and we get critical and mean and we become buttheads. By the way, our bishop uses that word. That's why I'm using it. <laughs> there was a point when I was at a Starbucks many, many years ago. Um, this is not the first time that I've preached out of this passage. Um, it was maybe six years ago, I was preaching the same passage, and I was working on the sermon. And I had preached it in an evening service, and I didn't like how it came across. And so that night, I went to Starbucks to redo it. So I'm reworking this sermon for the next morning. And I'm working on this part right here. Comparing and judging other people. And as I'm doing it, I'm typing this... I hear what is really quite amazing because I've never heard it before and i never heard it since. There was a guy not far from me who was talking about Greek. And not just Greek, Koine Greek, which is what the New Testament is written in. He's talking about Koine Greek. And I kind of glance over and there's another older man who's with him. They are having a conversation about Koine Greek. Now, what I wished I would have done would have been like, that is awesome. Like, these guys are sitting in a Starbucks on a Saturday night talking about the Bible in Greek. How cool is that? And instead, what I thought was, I'm going to listen in and see the first one that makes a mistake so that I can go correct them. And then I look back at what I'm working on. 
I will tell you, it is not hard to be critical and judgmental when you are trying to lift yourself up. And that's what I was doing. I was feeling a little bit insecure, really. And I start comparing myself, and I'm listening to a few things, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I could do this better. I'm better than that. I can get over there. How many times have you lifted yourself up by tearing somebody else down? That's what pride does. Pride is harmful because it is easy for it to infect us and because when it does, we get very critical. We get judgmental. We have a hard time. Honestly, we have a hard time even rejoicing with people sometimes. It's hard for me to rejoice with your success when I'm so caught up in my own, when I'm so caught up in my ideas about me being right. It makes us critical and judgmental. And number three, and I think this may be the worst. We can lose sight of even the greatness of God. We can lift ourselves up so high that we can even lose sight of the greatness of God. Notice that the tax collector actually says something to God that is a petition. God, be merciful to me. Notice that the tax collector doesn't ask for anything. You know why? He doesn't feel like he needs to. Remember how... Sorry, Pharisee. All right. My wife just shouted to me, wrong person. I'm having a real issue with wives and husbands and Pharisees and tax collectors, apparently. Last night, I was introducing people to... Or two nights ago... And like I kept introducing like the wife as his husband or something. I, all these weird things over and over again. Now I can't get tax collector and Pharisee right. Please hear what I'm trying to say and just, you know, ignore the fact that I can't talk. <laughs> now I don't even know where I'm at. Um, notice that the Pharisee does not ask for anything. Because he's trusting in himself that the things that he has done make him upright, which means... Listen to this. God is obligated to justify him. He doesn't have to ask because he trusts in the things that he's done. And now God's obligated to do it. By the way, have you ever said something like this? Lord, I have prayed so much about this. And what you want to say next is you should be doing this. Lord, I have sacrificed so much for you. You, and you may not say it, but you think it, you should not be letting this happen in my life. When we take our religious devotion to God and begin to make it something that obligates God to do things for us, we are moving in that direction. The Pharisee is losing how great God really is and thinking that somehow he can just come before God and say, I've done these things, God. Now you need to justify me. You'll never get to that point ever, but our pride will take us there and we will begin to believe even that God is obligated to us because we will lose sight of his greatness by focusing too much on our own greatness I saw a great visual of this 
since the 1946-47 NBA season, there have been 70 years. In those 70 years, 3,864 players have been a part of basketball. They have scored 44.37 million points combined. But here's the part I want you to hear. 806 of those players have scored at least 5,000 in their career. 325 have scored at least 10,000 in their career. Only 133 of the 3,864 have reached 15,000 points for their career. Only 41 have scored 20,000 points. Up until Tuesday night of last week, only five had scored 30,000 points. Five people out of 3,800 over 70 years had scored 30,000 points. But on Tuesday night at the American Airlines Center, <laughs> and, and this, is, this is what happened in my life. Um, I have a really good friend who is now a better friend. Because he got a hold of me that morning and said, I got an extra ticket. And so we got to go. And, and I just, this is what happened. I got to describe it to you. And I'm moving up to something. I'm not just trying to um, exalt Dirk Nowitzki. Only a little. Um, we get there. We're, the game starts. Dirk scores. All right, we're in the first quarter in like the first minute of the game. He scores and the place erupts. And it just keeps going. Every score, like we are cheering as if it is the fourth quarter. We're at a tied game and there's a minute left. And we're in the first quarter. Nobody's paying attention to the score. We're just watching Dirk go down the floor and like, he scored again. He scored again. And we're all totally excited. And it, the first quarter ends with 18 points. He needs two points to break this record. Second quarter, he goes down. And you've got to see it to see what I'm talking about. I'm going to turn around. Here's the basket. Here's the baseline. Dirk is right here. Defender is right here. Dirk falls back. A patented shot for him. Shoots it up. It goes in. Two points. The place erupts. I mean, just, we're all like, we just won the championship. ESPN showed that scene. And, and they stilled it like a shot, and they focus in on the defender. They showed him for a minute, and they pull back. They focus in on Dirk, and they're outlining them, by the way, in a color, so you can really see him focus on Dirk. This is the baseline. Mark Cuban always sits right here. So then they focus on Mark Cuban, who's like, oh, you know, that exact look. I practiced. But then they go three rows back, and there is a guy who is doing this. He is on his phone at that moment. I mean, literally the entire arena has phones out doing this. We're all recording it and stuff. And we're like, oh, no. he's looking at his phone. Now, you may not be a basketball player. You may not even like basketball. But that was a historic moment that we're not going to see again. 
I mean, to get to see that 30,000 points on our floor with our player, that is not going to happen again. And it is going to go down forever in the history of basketball. And whatever it was, this guy was doing this. And pride, that's what we do. God is doing something. And we can't notice because we're so enamored with ourselves. We're so fixated on how good we are, how good we need people to think we are, or whatever it is, that we can even miss what God is doing, what the greatness of God is. And you know what that leads to? It leads to the end of this parable. One of them went down justified and the other did not. Can I tell you that the only thing your pride will do is it will keep you from receiving from God because God does not reward pride. According to Jesus, he rewards humility, not pride. Why is it so dangerous? Because it starts with this, it's, it's almost, it's deceptive. It's like, well, I'm really good at this. Yes, you are. There's nothing wrong with that. But then I start going, no, I'm really good at this. And I'm going to start forgetting these other things down here. The rest of my life is a total mess because I'm good at this. And then I get critical and start judging all of you. And then I can't even be happy for you sometimes because I've become so critical about things. And then, without even recognizing it, I begin to think that even God may be obligated to me in times. I am missing some of the greatness of what God is doing. And all of a sudden, I'm exalting myself. And guess who is not exalting me? God. That's how Jesus ends this. You want to truly be lifted up? It's only going to happen if God does it. Because when we lift ourselves up, there will always come a cliff. You can't just remain up there. At some point, the mess comes back up. The stock market crashes. Your sin nature overruns you. Something's going to happen and you're going to crash. But when God lifts us up, it is a very different story. So, if you find that maybe you struggle with pride at all, here is the answer. Humility. Let me make it as practical as I can. Number one, focus on the whole of your life. Get, step back from that screen where everything looks put together, where you've got all of your strengths, where you've got all your successes, and they look so good, and step back and go, my life is bigger than that. When the, when the uh, tax collector comes before the Lord, he calls himself a sinner. That's a holistic view. He doesn't pick things out. He's going, I am a sinner. As I look at the wholeness of my life, I am a sinner. Um, look at the fullness of your life. Number two, don't compare yourself to everybody else. You want to get humble? You get one comparison in this life. Jesus Christ. Compare yourself to him. You'll lose every time. And you'll get a better perspective on how good you actually are. But don't compare yourself to other people. Because it will make you critical and judgmental and mean-spirited. And it may make you put them down when they don't deserve it. Don't compare yourself to other people. Instead, embrace humility. And just a couple things about humility. Number one, it is not weakness. Please don't think of humility as weakness. Number two, it's not a doormat. Being humble doesn't mean walk all over me. 
That's not it either. When you are humble, it means you can act in your strengths and your weaknesses without the need to be noticed for them. It means you can act honorably without the need to be honored because you trust him. Because if you're going to be honored, you're going to let him do it. It means you take everything that God has given you and you use it for his glory without going, I have to look like something or someone or I'm doing this for you. Humility is not weakness. I want to end with this. I was blown away by this story. And it will show you humility. This is what humility looks like. Um, January 13th, 1982. Um, Let me get the... So I I had an hour less of prep time. (laughs) You all had an hour less of sleep. (laughs) Not sure that's a good combination of things. Um, Air Florida Flight 90 took off. It clipped the 14th Street Bridge and then plunged, plunged into the Potomac. 74 of its passengers died. Four bystanders on the bridge died. But there were a few people that were saved. There was a helicopter pilot, and they're in a snowstorm. There was a helicopter pilot that risked flying the helicopter over the wreckage to drop a rope and try to pull people up. There was a steel worker that saw it happening and made his way out to the wreckage to try to pull people in. There was one man who watched a woman that was too weak to hold onto the rope of the helicopter and she plunged into the open water. And there was one man who saw it took shoes off, went into the water, and pulled this lady out. His name is Lenny Skutnik. He didn't know it was videoed. whole thing was recorded. Um, he became an instant hero. Um, he was on the news. The video was playing over and over again on all these stations. And he was being called a hero. And this is what he said. I wasn't a hero. I was just someone who helped another human being. We're surrounded by heroes. And he would later name them as war veterans, police officers, people who coach kids' ball teams. Um, He says, these are the real heroes. What made this different was I was just caught on film, and it went all over the place. Um, This guy worked at the Congressional Budget Office Building, where he did printing and distribution as an assistant. And you know what he was doing 28 years later when he retired? The exact same thing. You know what he never did? He never like wrote a book about this experience and got his name out there and made a bunch of money off it. He could have. Um, he, he, he meant this. He didn't view himself as a hero. He viewed himself as just doing what was right. Like I needed to go rescue this person. She was drowning. Well, less than two weeks later on January 26th, 1982, Skutnik was sitting next to Nancy Reagan. 
at the State of the Union Address. And this is what was said about him by the president. Just two weeks ago, in the midst of a terrible tragedy on the Potomac, we saw again the spirit of American heroism at its finest. The heroism of dedicated rescue workers saving crash victims from icy waters. And we saw the heroism of one of our young government employees, Lenny Skutnik, who, when he saw a woman lose her grip on the helicopter line, dived into the water and dragged her to safety. Now, talk about being exalted when the President of the United States says that about you. And you know what happened? This actually started a tradition. Since this point, presidents have brought in all kinds of ordinary people. Police officers, uh, moms, uh, a 13-year-old boy who is helping the homeless in New York. Um, brought in all kinds of ordinary people to be recognized and exalted by the President of the United States. That is what humility is. Taking what you have and doing what is right without the need to be honored for it, lifted up for it, even noticed for it, and letting God raise you up so that you truly know what it means to be exalted. We probably all struggle with pride to some degree. Some of us more than others. Probably some of us at different times in our life more than other times. My encouragement for you this morning is to recognize how deadly it is, how harmful it is, the trail that it can lead us on, and at the same time, how beautiful and wonderful humility can be when God can use his people and be the one to lift them up. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, we want our lives to reflect you, not us. We want our lives to reflect Jesus, who gave his for us. Lord, help us to recognize when our pride is raising its head, when we are being judgmental and critical, when we're even losing sight of you. Lord, help us to humble ourselves and to trust you that if there is lifting up to be done, you will do it and that we might be able to use all that you have given us for your glory without expectation. We ask this in Christ's holy name. Amen.